The scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, We're continuing our sermon series looking at the back half of Mark, and it's focusing on the teachings of Jesus, uh, and it's our hope that as we study these passages, kind of going into the summer months, that we learn what it means to follow Jesus in every circumstance of our lives. This morning, we're going to look at uh, Mark's recollection of events that actually we looked at just two months or so ago from Matthew's point of view, uh, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And in Mark's account here, there, there are a few different points of emphasis uh, and elements to the story that are really going to challenge and encourage us this morning. And I'm, I'm really excited about uh, looking at it with you guys. And here's why. 
We're going to look at the authority of Jesus and our call to submit to that authority. And you might be uh, like me that has a little bit of a tortured um, history with authority and submitting to it. Um, We all have different authority figures in our lives. Um, But there was one growing up that was a constant for me and maybe for some of you. um, And it was coach. Uh, But my best coach ever, my favorite coach ever, was a guy named Shiloh Tisdale. And he was my club coach when I was a junior in high school. Um, And then that one year as our club coach, and then the next year he became our high school coach, uh, which was really exciting for us because we liked him. Uh, But one thing about Shiloh was that he was a player's coach. He had recently graduated from the Citadel, which was the military college down in Charleston. Um, He was not really close to our age. He was in his mid-20s probably, but he felt like he was close to our age, so we were kind of buddy-buddy with him. We pushed the limits with him some. And, you know, on our club team, it was a little different than our high school team. He probably let some of that go. But I'll never forget this one time on our high school team. Uh, We had, it was like our first game of the season. We were supposed to be good that year. We had traveled like an hour away to play this other school that was not very good. And so we crushed them, like 10 to 0, right? There was no mercy there, which there should have been. Um, But we were on the way back, and we were really excited, right? Like we were super pumped up, you know, we thought we were great, whatever. And one player had this bright idea, well, I'm going to take this water bottle, and I'm going to throw it at my buddy at the front of the bus. And that buddy thought, well, I'm going to chuck it right back at him. And next thing you know, we're in an all-out water bottle war and chucking water bottles all across the bus, left and right at one another from the front to the back. I mean, it was really dangerous. Like someone could have definitely gotten an eye poked out, something. I'll never forget, though, I remember in my mind thinking, Shiloh's going to love this. He's going to join in on this. Like he's one of us. Like I'm really excited. I really expect, I don't know why, but I really expected him to want to do this with us. I was wrong. Um, I'll never forget him standing up for the first time and using his citadel voice on us and told us to stop and to sit down. And if anyone throws another water bottle on this bus, they're kicked off the team. And if anyone says one more word, they're kicked off the team. So we rode on the rest of the bus ride, 45 minutes home, in complete silence, not saying anything. And then when we got home, Shiloh made us march off the bus, walk out, and ran sprints for 30 straight minutes at 9 o'clock at night on a school night after a full game. I'll never forget that moment where we all, we all realized something's changed here. Shiloh is not who we thought he was. He flexed his authority over us. And the first time, and you know what happened? Everything changed for us in a good way. Actually, the team respected him more. They learned who he was more. They learned who they were in posture towards him better. And the team came together. We grew up a little bit that day. We were better for it. He transformed us more into a team that day. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in these verses that we just read. He's flexing his authority in a myriad of different ways. And his followers, the Pharisees, the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish and, and Gentile people, they were all witnesses to it. 
We see him claim his authority over the city of Jerusalem by entering into it like royalty to the praise of people. We see him claim authority over the Jewish religion and tradition by entering into its holy place and driving out the people and halting all practice of it for a day. We see him claiming authority even over the natural world by cursing a fig tree and it dying. This whole passage is about Jesus' authority. And it leaves the question, who will submit to that authority? And what's that going to lead to? And that's the same question that we are left with this morning. We know as Christians who believe that God himself became man, who, who walked among us and lived a perfect life, died our death, and rose again. We know that he is an authority over us, ruling at the right hand of God the Father. We know it's our call to submit to that authority in our everyday lives, in our work, and in our homes. And yet, if you're anything like me, this is hard. And I do this, I do this really bad a lot of times. I feel like my heart often is um, it's set on my own will and needs and what I want and my own authority. I can never imagine submitting that control to someone else. In a lot of ways, authority is a dirty word to me because of that. And some of you and, and, and me as well, we've actually we've been hurt by authority. And the way that's been abused in the past. The way that it's been used negatively towards us. And that triggers some deep hurt in you when you even just hear the word authority. I know that it does for me sometimes. So this is a complex and difficult thing for all of us, I think. But here's the truth. If we are going to submit to someone's authority on our life, if we're going to do that, even in its complexities and its brokenness, it may as well be the God of the universe, right? Who we know loves us and cares for us and meets us where we are through grace. And when we do that, when we submit to that authority, here's what happens. We're transformed. Just like that team, our team that came together under Shiloh, once he flexed his authority on us, we were changed. So too, even more, when we submit to the authority of Jesus, he transforms us more in his likeness and his image. And that's the heart of everything that we're going to talk about today. We must submit to the authority of Jesus in every aspect of our lives because when we do, he transforms us. And he does it in three ways. One, he transforms our expectations of him. Jesus transforms our hearts in him. And Jesus transforms our faith to him. So first, he transforms our expectations. And one thing that we don't talk about when we talk about Jesus' triumphant entry is why he was going to Jerusalem. So he was going to celebrate the Passover. And already going to the Passover, there was a ton of expectations in all of the nation of Israel. Think about it. It was a big festival. It was a week-long thing. People were excited. There was going to be dancing. There was going to be uh, markets. There was going to be food. There was going to be um, excited celebrations where they talk about their heritage and their ethnic um, stories going back to the Exodus and the Passover. I mean, this was like an exciting time. Like, they were very pumped up and excited, just like probably, um, well, not our students, but I was yesterday before the Amazing Race. I was like a giddy little kid. I was super excited. Um, but they were all pumped up, ready for this thing to happen. And if you think about it, as Jesus is coming into the city, they're excited and have high expectations for him. 
Some of them had heard his teachings. So a lot of them, almost all of them had heard of his teachings. They heard of his healings. They were pumped to finally meet this guy. And they knew he was coming. So that was kind of the, the expectation. It wasn't necessarily um, that the Messiah was coming, that they, they, they were hoping for that. It was more of like, this is an awesome and exciting time. And Jesus is here. And so when he comes up, he had a 4,000 foot of incline, um, you know, kind of hike as well. So he was exhausted. And yet he comes up and he sees the people and they're exuberant. And they're screaming to him and they're waving green. Uh, they're not palm fronds in, in Mark's recollection. They're just greens. Uh, they throw their robes on the ground in front of them, which would have been the only one that they owned. So that's a huge deal. I mean, that was the feeling there of great expectation and excitement. And then they do give him that next level of authority. And we know this because they say this. They say, Hosanna. Hosanna. And here's what this Hosanna means literally. It's a plea asking for immediate salvation. Essentially, they were saying to Jesus, save us now. We beg you, save us now. They expected him to save them in some way. And it even seemed like they submitted themselves to his authority. But we know that's not the case, right? What we know is that they were a capricious people who wanted immediate salvation from their political and socioeconomic or social position with little regard to what Jesus actually came to do. They didn't care about their spiritual standing or their health. And their confusion here is palpable they wanted salvation. They wanted someone to save them. But they wanted it only on their terms. They wanted a Savior, but not the one they got. They didn't want a Savior who died. Many of them missed it. Their wrong expectations and misguided submission to perceived authority made them miss the fact that they had a Savior who identified with them completely rather than a savior who tried to elevate them where they thought that they should be in life. They expected a savior who would affirm their view of who they were and who they thought that they should be. But what they got was a savior that was going to challenge them and challenge their values. They wanted to be saved, but not changed. They were crying, save us, but don't transform us. I don't know about you, but um, that hits me really hard. I feel like I resonate with that a lot. I want Jesus to pick me up out of my anxiety or my brokenness or my frustration, or my sadness, and my sin. I want him to change all those things. But I don't want him to change me. I'd rather be fixed than transformed. Perhaps you're in that same place with me this morning. We'd rather Jesus affirm who we want him to be or what we want him to do rather than who he says he is and what he shows and proven us that he does. We want Jesus to fix our circumstances rather than change our hearts. We want Christianity to be a self-help and self-improvement program rather than a life-altering, transformative relationship with the God of the universe. 
So when we submit to the authority of the true Jesus, to the Savior who came to die for the salvation of the world, who identifies with our brokenness, our humanness, and our ordinary, our expectations of Him are transformed in the best of ways. They are transformed into accordance with His will for us, for our lives, for who we are, and for this world. So submitting to that authority, that good and perfect authority, will transform us. So we will no longer look for our circumstances to just be fixed, but our hearts to be changed. We'll no longer look for our selfish desires to be met, but rather for our desires to be transformed into Christ's desires. We'll no longer expect the Savior to elevate us, but we'll look to a cross where our sin held the God of the universe. And we'll embrace the forgiveness that we find there. And hopefully... Maybe one day we will all get there. And we may not be there yet, but that we'll no longer expect hurt and pain to come from authority. But we'll be able to expect care and love and trust and submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ who died so that we may have life. Our expectations will be transformed into desiring and wanting to know that Savior and who He says He is and not who we want Him to be. That's my heart for all of us this morning. And it leads us to our second point. When we submit to the authority of Jesus, he, he transforms our expectations first. And now we're going to see that he transforms our hearts. And this is where we get to the really fun stuff. Uh, I couldn't be... So here's one thing. When you, when I, uh, part of the honor of getting to preach um, is that I learn like a lot of... And part of my job is getting to learn new stuff. Um, and that's like a really big blessing. And so this week, as I come, came to this passage and I read about Jesus cursing a fig tree and then driving people out of the temple, I had an idea of why he did that. And then I realized how wrong I was. Um, and it got me really excited. Um, sorry, that was not in the notes at all. So I probably shouldn't have said all that, but I really am really pumped about this. It's really good stuff. Um, and after Mark's account of Jesus' triumphant entry, we get to an interesting scene. So he comes into Hosanna's and praises. And the first thing he does when he gets to Jerusalem is he goes and checks out the temple. All right. He just checks it out, which, you know, is kind of foreboding just a little bit. And then he goes back to Bethany. And so when travelers come to Jerusalem, just like any other festival or something, not everyone could stay in the city because it was overrun and there's not enough hotels, everything. So he retreated to Bethany. And the next morning he gets up and they head back into Jerusalem for the day. And he comes to a fig tree, and he sees the fig tree, and he's hungry. And so Jesus uh, gets upset that the fig tree doesn't have any fruit on it for it to eat. Though Mark even says in here that it's not the season for fig trees to be there. So Jesus, being the God-man um, and just a person, probably knew that. Um, but still said, hey, I'm mad about this. And so he curses the fig tree. And then he leaves. Um, so that's kind of an odd thing um, that I find really funny. But here's why this is so cool. There are two time-honored symbols of Israel in Jewish literature. The vine, which he's not talking about here, um, but that's throughout the Old Testament and some of the New. And then the fig tree is emblematic of Israel as a nation. And Jesus is using the fig tree here as an acted-out parable. He's not actually mad at this fig tree. 
and cursed it because the fig tree wasn't bearing fruit. He's using it to symbolize the state of the entire nation of Israel and the posture of their hearts. He enters Jerusalem hoping to find fruit and finds none. He goes hungry into Jerusalem looking for people who are ready for him and the salvation he brings and they're not there. And so Mark puts the first half of this fig tree story before what is traditionally called the cleansing of the temple on purpose. He wants us to see this part before he goes to the temple. It gives us the context for what he does next. And this temple story is one that I feel like we talk about a lot because Jesus does some kind of extra stuff here. So let's read those verses. Let's read them together. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's halted it all for the day. And he starts teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, a lot of times when we hear this story, we take den of robbers and Jesus overturning tables and driving out money changers. And we take that to think that um, the temple, which was a place of worship, was becoming commercialized, right? Um, The place of worship for God had uh, become undignified and blasphemed by Jewish leaders for the sake of profit, um, their own gain, perhaps power and influence. And it's been applied to us today to say that Uh, We need to be careful about the church becoming commercialized and marketed for our own power and influence. And indeed, none of that is necessarily wrong. The temple was being used poorly and wrongly, but not necessarily in the commercialization sense. In fact, the sacrificial system of the temple, it actually depended on the money changing and the animal purchasing that we see in this passage. That was part of the goings-on. Like, it had to happen. So why did Jesus go in there And drive people out and flex his authority by halting business. Well, we know this because of the story of the fig tree. Jesus cursed the fig tree because it wasn't bearing fruit. And the temple, in the same way, was no longer bearing fruit either. Jesus was showing that it was also under God's judgment. It wasn't the commercialization of the temple that was the problem, though. It was the heart of the people who the temple was given to as a blessing in the gift, that was the problem. So how did this happen? What, what was the temple originally for? Well, the temple was given to the people of Israel so that they would have a, a place of fellowship with God where he could make his dwelling place among them. It was never to be his ultimate dwelling place, but it was a blessing to the people of Israel. It was a literal and symbolic emblem of his presence where the people could come and find forgiveness of sin and fellowship with him. But not only that, and this is really important, and Jesus mentions this when he talks about it uh, in, in this passage. He says that this place was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship for the nations. And that's a crucial part of that. And here's why. The people of Israel were set apart and called to be the people of God always for the sake of the world. They weren't set apart for their own sake to be elevated just for their own gain, but rather so that they could be a light to the world. It was part of their vocation to be a light to the world. 
And a big part of Jesus' charge against his fellow Jews in this passage was that they had used that set-apartness as an excuse to exclude the world. They had become a hard and narrow, nationalistic, pietistic people who only cared about their own gain at the expense of the world. The temple had come to symbolize not God's welcome to the world, but God's exclusion. A transformation of heart was desperately in need. And this loss of vocation is what caused Jesus to overturn tables. This is what broke his heart. This is what provoked the righteous anger out of him. More than any commercialization of a worship space could. Jesus came hungry to the temple looking for that fruit. And he didn't see it. It was never coming into season either. It was dead on the, on the inside. Regardless of what it looked like on the outside. I wonder if this story convicts you this morning as much as it does me. The leaders of the temple and its followers desperately needed a heart change and that transformation of their heart. And I feel like often I'm in that same boat. And this is what I love about what Jesus did. The text said that he stopped the activity in the temple for an entire day and started teaching. I wonder, um, I know for me, and I wonder for you, and when you think about that, that didn't make a big difference in the grand scheme of things, but what would it look like for us to take a moment to stop and to sit under and stopping for a day and sitting under the teaching and the care and love of Jesus, turning off our phones, spending time out, and having our heart renewed and transformed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Even us believers here, what would that look like for us? I like to think that that's what Jesus was doing a little bit as he's symbolically stopping the activity in the temple for a day. But this is also something else that's really cool. Jesus didn't cast judgment on the temple just because of what had become the life of the people of Israel. He also cast judgment on the temple because the temple was not going to be necessary much longer. Soon, Jesus the Messiah was going to die and raise again, defeating death for good, and the veil in the temple was to be torn, signifying that there was no longer to be any separation between God and man. God would no longer temporarily make his dwelling place among his people in the temple, but permanently with them, uniting them to Christ through his Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that our body is a temple. Because God has made his dwelling place permanently among us and in us. And this, this, that uniting with the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ is where our heart change starts and where it comes from. It's submitting to the authority of a God who has chosen to be in relationship with us, who has made his dwelling with us. So what does that look like? I think one place that we can all start is to ask that God who has made his dwelling place among us where the blind spots are in our lives and in our hearts. You see, I don't, I don't think that the Jews got to this place with the temple at the exclusion of the world overnight. It happened over time. People rose to power. Corruption happened slowly. And it wasn't until Jesus 
shined a light on that blind spot, did perhaps some of them see it, and they began to come around. And I wonder for us where our blind spots are. Where are we missing our vocation to be a light of the world, to spread the gospel, to include the world in this gospel ministry that Jesus has given us rather than to exclude them? What would it look like for us to be convicted of that and to have our hearts transformed more and more in that? I think we can ask him together. We can ask him to change and transform our hearts and to show us those blind spots. And I wouldn't be surprised if he began to show us. And it leads us to our third point. So first, he will transform our expectations, our hearts. And now we're going to see he's going to transform our faith. And it's fitting for us to be reminded of the transformative power of Jesus in our hearts by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we come to the end of this passage. Because... It's only in that indwelling of the Spirit that unites us to Christ that our faith will grow and become bold and will be transformed. And so they leave the temple and they go back to Bethany and on the way back they see the fig tree and Peter sees it and says, Jesus, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And he responds to him and says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whatever, or whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And it's an interesting end of this passage because Jesus enters Jerusalem to the praise of the crowd like a conquering king or general. He reminds his disciples of his authority and he shows it over the natural world and of the religious life. And we come back to the fig tree. He decides to remind them to have faith. Now, that's an interesting end of the story. Why does he do this? I think he does this to remind them that he is in control. That he is in power. He is at work, and he's not going to leave them or forsake them. It reminds us today, too, that Jesus is not just an authority of the material world or our lives, but he is in authority and in control of even our faith itself. And he reminds this to them. He encourages them to pray and pray, pray boldly for their needs because they have a God who hears their prayers. He encourages them to forgive one another and to forgive boldly because God first forgives and forgives them boldly. And he encourages them to approach the throne of God in faith because they have a God who rules and cares for them faithfully. I don't know about you, but my... My faith in that work in the midst of the brokenness in my own life and in the world, it's weak often, if you want me to be completely honest. But as passages, I think, like these, even in the oddity that it is, that brings me hope and comfort. Because it reminds me that it's okay that my faith, my faith is weak sometimes. My hope is not in how strong my faith is, or in how strong my faith looks to people. But rather, in Jesus' claim over me as his beloved son. My hope is in the fact that Jesus walked among us. He came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross. He claimed authority over even my death and my sin. 
for my sake. I'm reminded when my faith is weak that he claimed authority over that, dying a death he didn't deserve, so that I may have life. And when I remember that, my faith grows because I am able to submit every aspect of my life to him. And you know, um, the fact that our faith starts with Jesus and ends with him, that's why in Hebrews chapter 12, he's called the author and perfecter of our faith because it's in him that our faith grows, starts, and ends. And we can take comfort in that. So what would it look like, though, for our faith to be transformed in him? I've got two points. And the first is directly from the text. It's to pray and to pray boldly. Because we have a God who hears our prayers and answers them. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with an active prayer life. I I take metaphors like these that say that you can throw a mountain into the sea. And um, I think they're almost uh, a ridiculous thing that I tend to discredit because it's so out of the ordinary. But what he's doing here is telling us that our requests and prayers, no matter how big, if they are prayed in faith, they are heard, they are answered, and they are received by Jesus Christ. Or sometimes I take the image of God as a father and use it negatively in my posture of prayer. I imagine myself to be like an insistent, an annoying toddler begging my parents for something. But the image of God as father does not liken us to toddlers but as humans made in his image, as his sons and daughters. Our strengths, it reminds us that our strengths, our abilities, our talents are not enough to get us through. It's that we pray boldly, hoping that God, our Father, through his Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit will work in our everyday life and circumstances. One commentator puts it this way, faith is not chosen arbitrarily as a condition of prayer. It is the basic condition of all of our relationship with God, including prayer. I love that. I was talking to my, um, one of my best friends up in Michigan, who's a pastor up there. We went to seminary together and we talk every week. And I asked him this week, I said, do you think that Christians struggle with submitting to the authority of God or of Jesus in their everyday lives? And he looked at me and he said, um, well, what does it look like to submit to the authority of Jesus? I said, well, I think it means to live in everyday accordance to his work and his will and his love and his care and all these things. And he was like, well, where are you going to look to figure out how to do that? And I was like, the Bible? And he was like, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, good. But he's right. If we want to know what it looks like to submit to the authority of Jesus in every aspect and circumstance of our lives, we have to be saturated in Scripture. It is the blueprint for how to follow Jesus, how to submit to him, and to be reminded of his goodness and his grace and his love for us as we follow him. It is the starting point for us to submit to Jesus, is to be saturated in his given word to each and every single one of us. So if you want to know where we start in submitting to Jesus, it's with his word. And that seems so basic, and yet it is the most important thing that we can do at the same time as we are on this journey together. And in that, we will grow 
and our faith will be transformed. So I looked this up last night to be sure. Um, but that first year is my senior year with Shiloh. We lost in the, um, in the state semifinals. Um, we're almost at a decade since I've, I've played, or over, sorry, Dece, well over a decade since I played for him. Um, but the past two years, Shiloh's won 54 straight games as the Wando High School head coach, 5A public school level, the highest level of high school soccer. He's built that program to back-to-back undefeated season state championships and back-to-back number one national rankings. That guy can coach. And he figured it out. The authority thing, the players coach thing, he figured out what it looks like to assert his authority when he needs to and to meet his players where they are and care and compassion when he needs to as well. And I, I, the results are obvious on the field, right? But the old, results are only obvious on the field when they're obvious in the players' hearts themselves. I can promise you that from playing sports my whole life. And Shiloh was the best coach I ever had, and, and he impacted me a ton, and he changed me a lot. This is only a shadow, only a picture of the leadership, the authority, and the rule the care, the love, and the relationship that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, Michael said this uh, the other week, but I, I just love it. If you think about all the, the different ways in which um, people in our life have loved us, and you multiply them over and over and over and again, it is only a shadow of how much the God of the universe loves us, each and every one of us, to the core of our being. And that is a God that we can submit to. That is a God that we can live our lives to, that will promise to transform our expectations of him more in line with his will. It will transform our hearts into more in love with him for the world to the inclusion of it, not the exclusion. And it will transform our faith to one in which is unwavering and strong even when it doesn't feel like it is in him. Pray with me. Father, thank you that um, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And thank you that you came and you walked among us and that you loved us so much to die for us. And now you sit on your heavenly throne and authority over us. I pray that this week as we go out that we pray and we pray boldly for your work in the world um, and for your transformative power um, over our expectations, over our hearts, and over our faith, God. Um, We know that you do care and you do work and you love us, and that is a true gift to us. So we thank you for that. That's in your name we pray. Amen.